Hey there, welcome back. And let's see what is on Gaia about Anunnaki. Maybe? Ooh, Living Legend of Atlantis. Is this new? Gibraltar. This majestic channel connecting the Mediterranean Sea and the, the Atlantic Ocean was a recurring theme in mythology. The ocean levels were drastically lower, making this waterway a massive canyon. And the two mountain ranges along the sides were known as the Pillars of Hercules. What lies beyond these great pillars in the powerful Atlantic Ocean? has been a mystery in the lore and legends. Atlantis, Atalantis, and Atlantica are some of the names throughout history. Alternative researchers search for potential pieces and parts of this influential empire all over the planet. But what happened? Roughly 11,600 years ago, when this powerful ancient empire came to a very abrupt end. The lost continent of Atlantis has been the subject of stories and fables and music throughout history. It's deeply ingrained into our culture and our memories as a tradition. But the question is, did it really exist? Do we have evidence that it existed? And if it did, what does it mean to us today? The story of Atlantis is arguably the greatest of all of the ancient mysteries. Uh, we're talking about a huge island continent somewhere out in the Atlantic Ocean that thrived, but then was destroyed in one single night and day through earthquakes and floods. And for hundreds of years, we've tried to find out where exactly Atlantis is located and to try and find it. Was it closer to the Pillar of Hercules? In other words, just outside of the Mediterranean? Maybe the Canaries? Maybe the Azores? Or was it much further away? We're still looking now. There is pieces of evidence. There are archaeological remains. There is possibility of the survival of some of the peoples of Atlantis, both in the Americas and possibly even in Europe and Africa. But it's an enigma that we have to take hold and look at everything and study everything, almost from the point of beginning it again. Atlantis can really be seen as like a global civilization. And ideas were spread around the world. There was global communication. There was technologies. There was megalithic construction. There may be even a technology similar to us today. But because so much devastation took place, 
There's little evidence apart from a few places that are being discovered in relatively recent years. One thing is for sure, Atlantis did exist. There is no way out, and we don't know where it is. There are different possibilities which we find in the literature. Most of it, they say it's in the Mediterranean Sea. It was near the island of Creta, sunk there. Others says, and it's even written out of Gibraltar, where today the Bermuda Triangle is. There are different possibilities. No one else knows for sure what Atlantis was. Throughout ancient Egypt, there are many clues that point to this great civilization beyond the great pillars of Hercules. Strange hieroglyphs in Egypt in the temple of Seti in Abydos, depicting what looks to be a helicopter, plane, submarine, and zeppelin, have puzzled alternative researchers and led to speculation that this once great pre-Diluvian civilization reached the height of our current technology. The relics buried along the Nile riverbank likely hold many more clues to help us understand the power and influence of the mighty Atlantean Empire. When you unpack the, the story of Atlantis, you realize that it's an Egyptian story, that it's the Egyptians trying to come to terms with or understand who their divine ancestors were. And you can only imagine them around 400 BC looking around and seeing massive pyramid complexes and asking the question, well, well, where did these come from? I mean, traditional Egyptology says that they were built in 2500 BC, 1500 years or so before the time of Plato. But yet they're writing these stories telling about an advanced civilization that existed long before them. In the Egyptian oral tradition, Egypt was originally called Kem or Kemet, the black land or even the land of gold. And in the stories, they, they're always referring to divine ancestors that originally founded Egypt. And by extension, we're, we're asked to believe that these divine ancestors were perhaps the Atlanteans and that they were the ones that were responsible for all these incredible temples and much of the technology that they were seeing in ancient Egypt. One of the legendary Egyptian gods and scribes, known as Toth, left behind his own set of ancient records known as the Emerald Tablets of Toth, in which he describes seeing the entire story in the legacy of Atlantis, from its primitive origins of purity of knowledge to eventually becoming corrupted by war and empire building. And Toth describes how the survivors of Atlantis were who came to Egypt to create the ancient Egyptian civilization known as Kemet. Toth describes how the technology and knowledge from Atlantis was passed to Egypt. It was there that he describes how there was a great hall known as the Halls of Amenti, where they had a great library. Contained within this library was all the knowledge of the past, including Atlantis. The connection between Egypt and Atlantis, I think, is cultural. For instance, we've got mummification, we've got the uh, extended skulls, the cranial deformation. And also we've got the practice of magic with the Book of the Dead. And we've got pyramid building. So where did all of this come from? Did it just arise overnight in ancient Egypt? Or was it the legacy of Atlantis? So I think the links are throughout the culture of ancient Egypt, not just in the monumental building, 
but in its culture and identity. I think it's a direct fallout of Atlantis. Historical legends state that around 450 BCE, Athenian statesman and poet Solon traveled from Greece to the Nile and began studying the ways of ancient Egypt. In a temple in the ancient city of Sais, there was an elder priest named Sanchis that told him of the tales of Egypt's ancestors from a lost civilization. When Solon returned to Greece, the legend began growing, and Atlantis was eventually woven into books by the philosopher Plato through his works Timaeus and Critias. In a way, these dialogues are sort of like Plato's family story. It's a story that was passed along from his ancestor Solon, who 150 years before the time of Plato had traveled to Egypt. He was told by the priests there, the point of origin of the divine ancestors of the Egyptians was this island civilization called Atlantis that was said to have been located beyond the pillars of Hercules out in the Atlantic Ocean. No one at this time, save for maybe the Egyptian king's list or others, were talking about civilizations many, many thousands of years before Plato's time. What is most interesting to me is Plato's dating of the end of Atlantis. He says it's about 9,000 years before Solon, which puts us about approximately 9,600 BCE based on our calendar. So I think that helps confirm that these traditions were based on reality, that there really was this early cycle of civilization. Now we have to ask, or we have to consider what happened to people between the end of that cycle of civilization and the reemergence of civilization. The idea and the story of a civilization that disappeared in a deluge or an island that sinks under the sea, that turns up a lot in India, in Ireland, in North and South America. I think that there is lots of evidence of the story. Annoyingly, we can't even verify Plato's text because the, the Temple of Sais, which is where the original text was copied from and recorded by the ancient Egyptians, that's fallen into the Delta. And so we can't even go there now. I wish we could, because then we could, we could probably verify the story or the basis of the story from there so at the minute we just have to trust the text and we just have to go from what plato says and what we can do is we can source around and we can see what's verifiable from a scientific point of view from the geology and the geography and we can put it up against all the other ancient lore and see what's similar and you, you can create a picture it tells it tells a very specific story plato was he was a cunning guy you can't take everything at face value because what was happening here at the time is that the Greek culture is in its ascendancy and they're borrowing things willingly from the Egyptians, which we know. And they're also borrowing a lot of ideas from the Indus culture and the Indian culture. And we know that because their main god, Zeus, for example, was a corruption of the word Deus, which is one of the main gods in the Indian pantheon. Part of what Plato was doing in order to give the Greek civilization a perfect foundation from which to start democracy he starts getting the ideas from Solon of a perfect society. Skeptics who look at the Atlantis story and say it can't possibly exist because 
Solon could not have seen accounts of the destruction of a continent in Egypt, for instance, are totally wrong. Every Egyptian temple would have on their walls what were known as foundation texts. Uh, and these start with creation, literally, and then move forward the construction of the first enclosure, the first temple, uh, the first city, etc., etc. And the fullest remaining account of a foundation text in Egypt is a, a place called Edfu in the southern part of the country. Huge, great temple complex. And on the walls there, it talks about just such a cataclysm. And what it says is that there was this island called the Island of Creation or the Island of the Egg. And that on here, the earliest beings to inhabit the world created an enclosure, the first temple. And then suddenly there was something bad happened. What they refer to as an enemy snake suddenly appears in the sky and there is a period of darkness. And suddenly the waters rise up and cover over this primeval island, destroying not just the temple, but all of the inhabitants. When people hear about Atlantis, many are familiar with Plato and the work that he had connected to the Timaeus and Critias and descriptions left behind. But many aren't aware that there were other Greek philosophers that knew incredible details of Atlantis, such as Diodorus. Now, the reason why there are other individuals that knew this information was that Plato was not the one who was told this from the temple priests of Sais. Solon actually told Socrates, as well as other Greek philosophers, which is why the story has to come from multiple people and not one single source. When we combine the information from Diodorus along with Plato, what we have is a cohesive narrative that connects with a very specific time period that Atlantis was described as being destroyed 11,600 years ago. Now that time period matches up not only when Plato was alive and existed, telling his story, but matches up with ice core samples and geologic evidence from the Atlantic Ocean Basin of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge that if we compare ancient records show us that there were incredible catastrophes going on at this exact time period that's described by Plato and Diodorus for the destruction of Atlantis, matching both the descriptions of its location as well as the time period that was causing widespread destruction all across the earth more than 11,000 years ago. In their descriptions, Plato and Diodorus are emphatic that Atlantis was originally a very pious or righteous civilization. The emphasis was on their, their connection with the gods, that the Atlanteans themselves were considered to be hybrid beings. They were, they were part human, part divine. They were, they were demigods, and they had been warned especially by Zeus, that as long as they adhered to their spiritual beliefs and, and maintained their piousness and righteousness, that everything was going to be fine with Atlantis. But of course, as Plato tells the story, they wavered from that. And Atlantis then begins this long decline into darkness that culminates with the, the total destruction of their civilization in a single day, in a single night. Tales of Atlantis were prevalent in ancient Greece. But as with any civilization that is destroyed by cataclysm, the evidence to prove the exact location has been much harder to find. Plato tells us that the main island was closer to the actual 
opposite continent that he refers to, which I would take to be the Americas. And all the indications are that it was some distance out. And we can say this because he says that where the sunken land of Atlantis was now these mud shoals, in other words, very shallow areas of sea that a vessel could very easily get you know, grounded on, these, on this mud. Now, various other ancient writers contemporary to Plato also talk about these mud shoals, and they add something very vital about them, and that's the fact that this area was also covered in seaweed. And this tells us that we are dealing with the Sargasso Sea, a massive area between the Azores and the Bahamas, uh, quite literally covered in seaweed. When I started to research Atlantis, and I started looking at it from a scientific point of view, the geography and the geology, and saying, okay, is it plausible what Plato recorded? And when you look especially into the, the mid-Atlantic and all of the geology and everything that's going on there, it is actually plausible. It's not impossible. It was claimed in, like, the 1960s. They sort of did a scan of the ocean floor, and they said, no, there's, there's no lost continent there. And so people kind of took that and went, Okay, and they started looking for Atlantis in other places, which then made the whole Atlantis search kind of a joke because you could go, oh, maybe it was here, maybe it was in Australia, maybe it was in Antarctica. And people stopped looking in the original place that Plato said it was. But if we refocus back to that whole area and look at what went down, it turns out that, yes, the, the middle of the Atlantic Ridge is an extremely volatile area. It's on uh, this sort of trifactor of three plates. They all meet right at the Azores. It's this incredibly delicate place. And if any natural global catastrophe was going to happen, I would not want to be there because it's the place that if any island was going to sink, it would be, it would be there. In 1882, American congressman and writer Ignatius L. Donnelly published the book Atlantis, The Antediluvian World in which he presented evidence to show that a sophisticated civilization known as Atlantis had once existed and was destroyed from the same event in the Bible known as the Great Flood. He based this theory on both Plato's descriptions of Atlantis and the date of its destruction. Ignatius Donnelly was a congressman from Minnesota who ran for Congress as much with the motive in mind that he could get access to the Library of Congress. And he spent a lot of his time researching Atlantis. And he actually wrote a book where he puts lots of ideas into it, lots of speculation about what Atlantis really was, how it influenced the world, what these people were doing at this time, what technologies they had, and how it even influenced other cultures like Egypt, Mexico, and other places around the world. Ignatius Donnelly is really important to the whole modern story of Atlantis. So he wrote this book basically theorizing that Plato, he was actually talking about something real. It wasn't made up and, and fiction. And that really like took off and everybody suddenly started to get interested in Atlantis and suddenly started looking for Atlantis and it became really fashionable to look for Atlantis from like the 1880s onwards. And his ideas have really kind of stuck in the consciousness of many people. And a lot of people go along with what he said, as well as what Plato said and other early writers. It's the fact that Atlantis was a genuine landmass that got destroyed in a cataclysm and sunk beneath the Atlantic Ocean. 
But now Ignatius Domini saw that there was evidence for great catastrophes during that epoch, and his trigger for these catastrophes was a comet impact. So in that respect, I think he was way ahead of his time. And some people say that Ignatius Donnelly was like the godfather of alternative history. Like he's the first one that really started the, wait, maybe we could look at something through a different lens, or maybe these myths and legends and laws have some kernel of truth in them. Let's look for it. As the prophetic tales of this once great civilization were woven through lore and legend, alternative researchers were ignited by the wisdom and accuracy of the dating given by the sleeping prophet Edgar Cayce. When a compilation of excerpts from his earlier readings called Edgar Cayce on Atlantis was published in 1968. Edgar Cayce is arguably America's most famous psychic. He was known as the sleeping prophet. As these readings were taking place, he would often see past lives of this particular person standing or sitting in front of them. And this could include information about lives in Atlantis. He was able to flesh out areas that Plato had never got to. He talked in terms of their technology, for instance, crystal technology, and the different experiments they were doing, uh, the different temples that they were constructing for energy healing. But he also then talks about the destruction of Atlantis. He said it, would, it took place over a period of time, beginning around 50,000 years ago, and ending around 10,500 BC. So that's slightly earlier than Plato's 9,600 BC, but still in the same ballpark, essentially. And what he said was that the final remnant of Atlantis was in the area of the Bahamas and the Caribbean, and that this is where we should look for any evidence of it rising again, quite literally. And he said, look for this in 1968 or 1969, not too far away, which it wasn't, it was just a couple of decades away. And indeed, what happened at this very time, 1968-1969, was the discovery of this incredible archaeological feature off of the coast of North Island in the islands of Bimini in the Bahamas. Edgar Cayce said Atlantis, it stretched all the way virtually to Europe he actually said Bimini was an area where it was like the mountaintop area, which was still now above the water level. And since then, the Bimini Road has been found, these huge underwater megalithic pavements or roads going throughout the whole area there. And so his predictions came true in that respect. He also said uh, the Hall of Records was... Originally in Atlantis, ended up in places like Egypt, the Bahamas, in the Yucatan of Mexico, and so on and so forth. But one of the things he did say is that it was destroyed, the final destruction at least, in around 10,000 BC. Now, it had been around for thousands of years before that. Other cataclysms had happened, going back potentially to 50,000 years. But the final destruction where it fully went under the water was around 10,000 BC. What's interesting about that, that coincides with the Younger Dryas impact event within a couple of hundred years. 
So he had some inkling, even though this wasn't known about when Casey was around, that a cataclysm had actually taken place. And he repeated that in his readings over and over again throughout the years, which really began in 1923 when he got the first piece of information coming down to him about Atlantis. I think if we take Case's understanding of it was sophisticated, you had, you know, crystal technology and, and kind of combined that to Plato, then I think we can ground his reality. As alternative researchers piece together the story of Atlantis through philosophers and mystics, it is apparent that little of this once vast empire has been discovered. Among the most tangible clues from Plato's works on Atlantis is his description of a circular city structure and massive canal system. Areas such as Mauritania in Africa share similar features to Plato's circular city description. But one continuous theme around Atlantis is that it was swallowed by the sea. Plato has a description of the canals. That canal system we can see on a NOAA map. You can go to the west-southwest of the Strait of Gibraltar, you can look down there, and you can see the series of interconnected canals that match Plato's description. It's fascinating. And what they were meant to do, they were built to uh, take water from the mid-Atlantic ridge, or so it must have been a nice spring, that fed down, and by creating canals, they increased streamfront property, right? So it increased clan access to fresh water. The canals were adapted to the pre-flood ecosystem. It was warm down there. The food was abundant, and the members of this clan built these canals to increase access, to make it more livable, to increase, if you will, the size of their clan. That was the purpose of the canals. So what I see is the ancient people of Atlantis, they knew about technology. When we look at the circular city, the metropolis described by Plato himself as being three circuits. Why three circuits? When we look at esoteric water divining, you have the strongest energy pattern is three concentric circles. And those three concentric circles, I believe and suggest, is why there are three concentric islands of the metropolis described by Plato. I'm looking beyond Plato and thinking, what is the design canon that lies beneath Atlantis? And it's earth energy and the power of Gaia, harnessed not just in the layout of the circular cities, but in agriculture itself. Was the area we now call the Atlantic Ocean mostly land, roughly 12,800 to 12,900 years ago? How low was the Mediterranean Sea? And how mighty did the Atlantean Empire become before the devastating events began the Younger Dryas period? What happened roughly 11,600 years ago to cause the flooding and destruction of this great empire and the end of the Younger Dryas. As alternative researchers examine the scientific evidence of ancient Earth catastrophes, 
What other relics from the ancient Atlantean Empire lay below the surface, beyond the Pillars of Hercules, in the mighty Atlantic Ocean? Geological and geological records. Roughly 12,800 to 12,900 years ago, the Earth was drastically changed by a cosmic event. Trapped under the surface of this majestic planet is an ancient record that holds the clues to a time on Earth when all geological patterns and cycles were broken and the earth was ravaged by floods and plunged back into a frozen and dark time known as the Younger Dryas period. There's a mystery that exists even today that the great scientists of our world continue to speculate on and they have to speculate because the truth is we do not know precisely what happened during a mysterious period of time called the Younger Dryas. It's a mystery because of the sudden shift in climate, the sudden shift in the sea levels. We're left only with the clues that tell us that these events happened. It's up to us to determine what caused the events themselves. Why did they happen? During the Pleistocene, the glaciers were at their maximum. We were coming out of this ice age. There was a warming that was happening on the planet as you would expect through the cyclic conditions that we have seen in the past. These cycles often are driven by what are called Milankovic cycles. This is Earth's dance around the sun in space. It is a tilt, an angle, and a wobble that changes our relationship to the sun, periodically causing temperatures to rise and fall. And we were on course for this gradual warming when something happened, and it's this mystery that is at the root of the controversy that we're seeing today, and it's at the root of what may be the cause for the loss of the great civilizations that we're talking about, like Mu and Atlantis. The ice core samples that we've dug up from various locations, particularly Greenland, also Russia, have shown a number of things relating to the Younger Dryas. Every year on glaciers, when the snowfall lands and it gets compacted into ice, Every year, year after year, there are these layers of ice that get built up in the ice structure itself. So when you drill down and take a, a core sample of ice, our science is progressing to the point where we can individually sort of look at it at a single year, a single layer inside of that ice core and determine from things like oxygen isotopes, things like global temperature, the amount of 
evidence for say things like massive biomass burnings which is one of the things that shows up in these ice cores related to the younger dryas and in fact this our science has really progressed to a point now where we can we can show that during the younger dryas there was a, a huge temperature swings up to like 10 to 12 degrees across the planet that might have happened within a decade or even less say four or five years which is just a, a catastrophic temperature swing that would have really changed the climate on the planet in, in dramatic ways. When we look at these ice core samples from Greenland, it gives us this perfect snapshot to understanding what the climate of the Earth was like during the Younger Dryas period. We had this plummeting of temperatures, followed by a rapid rise at the end of the Younger Dryas, leading to a much warmer and stable climate. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the Younger Dryas period had multiple different events that seem to have occurred. The fascinating thing is that those trends and those spikes in those temperatures, as well as following CO2, they match the descriptions we have of when this volatile time period destroyed civilizations around the world. Around that 12,800, 900-year boundary, we find something called the Younger Dryas layer. And we find this layer all around the world, in areas from North America to the tip of South America and Chile, we also find the Younger Dryas boundaries in South Africa, as well as in Europe. In fact, most of these indicators, at least in the early days of this work, came from archaeological sites in North America, the, the Clovis sites that go back to around 13,000 years ago. So it's a very well-defined strata layer that we see in the ground that we can define to specific dates. And this consists of a, a black mat layer. And just below that, we also find what we would term impact proxies. Things like shock-synthesized nanodiamonds, magnetic spherules, large quantities of extraterrestrial platinum and iridium metal groups. These proxies are really only formed in the extremely high temperature conditions that occur during cosmic airbursts and cosmic impacts. A cosmic airburst is essentially a cosmic body coming into the atmosphere and instead of burning up smaller particles when they come in, meteor showers when we see them, that's a, a piece of rock or something from a meteor stream burning up in the atmosphere. But if you have a large enough body, it might come into the atmosphere and just be heated up by that transit through the atmosphere and then explode. Essentially like a, a nuclear bomb going off in the sky. Geologic evidence from around the world and scientists are looking at this younger driest boundary layer that tells us that that was the time period and that was the place in history where cataclysms across the earth from volcanism to potentially extreme solar events to even cosmic impacts in the ice core samples we can see the evidence for just tremendous biomass burning we're talking something in the order of 10 million square kilometers of the biomass on the planet, which could have been as much as eight or 9% of biomass burning during this period. This may have triggered the nuclear winter effect that actually was a leading cause to the deep freeze, the, the deep plunge back to a glacial maximum state of temperatures that occurred after the start of the Younger Dryas. To understand what happened 12 and 13,000 years ago, we have to go beyond just the earth. We have to look at this whole solar system as a unified system and that something can then disrupt that. When we look to the beginning of the Younger Dryas and we see the various calamities and catastrophes 
that hit our planet. We have to wonder where this comes from. And in between Mars and Jupiter, there's an area that we call the asteroid belt. And inside this mysterious belt, there's over a million different asteroids that are over a half a mile in diameter. Now, there is a major debate as to the origin of this asteroid belt. But if we look to ancient Sumerian texts like the Enuma Elish or the Law of One in modern times, we hear that the debris in this field comes from the remains of a giant watery planet that was destroyed. There's been various names for this planet, like Tiamat, Mulgay, Nibiru, Phaeton, even Maldek. Tiamat disintegrates into however many pieces, becomes the asteroid belt circling the sun between Mars and Jupiter. What if there are fragments of that planet that escape that orbit? And that becomes the comet that triggers the Younger Dryas. Many researchers believe that the Younger Dryas is caused by a cometary impact. Well, where did that comet originate from? Is it possible this was a fragment of Tiamat that actually escapes the orbit that it was originally in and destroys much of what we know of as ancient civilization? When we look at the solar system, we have to remember that all of the bodies are connected through the gravity of the sun, which holds the planets in place. And if you were to have one of those planets, especially the size of Tiamat, explode, that would throw off that gravity balance throughout the whole solar system, causing the sun to go in such a violent uprising, kicking out solar proton outbursts and coronal mass ejections. These things are hitting the Earth causing vitrification and fires all over the planet. But let's not forget the water of Tiamat. The gravity of the sun is pulling that water toward the center of the solar system. That is racing towards the Earth. And that water crashing into the Earth would have caused flooding and upswells of water throughout all the planet. It was definitely a very massive time period of upheaval. Recent geologic evidence is showing us beyond any shadow of a doubt that there was an incoming object that fragmented in our atmosphere, creating hundreds of thousands of impacts that range all the way from the northern latitudes in Greenland and Newfoundland all the way down into South Africa. There's tremendous evidence now in scientific literature, mostly led by the Comet Research Group, that supports the idea that it was a series of airbursts and cosmic impacts that likely triggered the Younger Dryas event around 12,800 years ago. This would have been the impacts of, of probably multiple mile-wide impactors uh, across the northern hemisphere of the planet and also a, a series of airbursts. We're not talking about just a single impact. Most of the evidence now points towards it being a series of impacts and airbursts that occurred that started the Younger Dryas. One of the interesting things, geologically, that tells us this happened is that first we can see now with Earth imaging radar, we can see the impact craters in places where we never thought to look for craters before. We can see them in the, the shallow water of, of the sea shelf. We can see them on land masses where we never expected craters to exist. Geologically, what we're seeing is traces, high traces of the element platinum. 
and we're seeing it in the absence of iridium, another element. Now, this is important from a geologic perspective. Iridium is a transition metal that is in the platinum family. So naturally occurring platinum, you would expect to see with iridium deposits. What we're seeing in the meteor craters is standalone platinum without the iridium. And the way that geologists interpret this is that that platinum is of an extraterrestrial origin. It doesn't mean aliens and UFOs. It means that an object came from beyond our planet that was rich in the platinum that is relatively rare on Earth. And that that platinum was not part of the iridium platinum sequence that you would typically see if it were naturally occurring on Earth. Our whole planetary system is covered completely with craters. Not only the moon, our planet Earth has more than 900 craters. Normally nobody speaks about it because you don't see them. They are under vegetation. They are under forest in the desert. The United States sent a probe into a comet, Comet Temple One, and they do this analysis of its composition. It was a small comet. It looks to have been a fragment of a larger object. It didn't have a central core, but this Comet Temple One was roughly 75% open space. Two-thirds of its mass was ice water. A comet can have an enormous amount of rocky debris entrained within its icy mass, along with hydrocarbons along with volatiles, gases, cosmic dust. So a comet can actually induce some pretty significant changes into the biosphere. With impact craters around the planet Earth and new evidence about the structure of comets, the question remains, was all of the Earth's extra water held only in the polar ice or was a vast amount more delivered? at the beginning of the Younger Dryas period. 12,800 years ago, there was a major cosmic impact. This delivered more than two miles of water to the former abysses. The object that delivered the flood has many names, one of which is Phaeton. Phaeton impacted the Earth. It delivered roughly more than two miles of water to the abyssal plains. Along the way, it shed huge ice chunks. Geologists know there was an impact. We can find impacts in North America, South Africa, and some people think there are impacts even in Europe, which would mean that Phaeton was real high up on its Earth approach, and it was shedding these things over a wide distribution. When Phaeton hit and its ice started melting and those waters started coursing their way around the planet, the volume of water that was delivered is almost unimaginable. The whole planet is changing because of this. Initially, inhabitants of the Mediterranean are more likely to have survived the flood event than anywhere else on the planet, almost. Inhabitants of the Mediterranean basin had a survival advantage because they recognized that there were some great changes to the planet taking place. That would have included intense rain when the waters flowed into the basin through the strait of gibraltar those inhabitants were chased out of the mediterranean and up to either the southern coast of europe or the northern coast of africa folks on the eastern end of the mediterranean 
Uh, once that would eventually flood, they may have made their way to Turkey, Syria, Israel. In other words, the eastern part of the Mediterranean now, those landscapes. What caused the beginning of the Younger Dryas? There are a couple of theories involved here. The major theory that many people talk about is that perhaps the Younger Dryas began with a comet hitting. The comet proponents have suggested all kinds of evidence for this impactor, this physical impactor, either hitting the Earth or exploding in the atmosphere. Most of them put it over North America. They suggest that there's things like the Carolina Bays that might be part of the comet. They have suggested that there might have been an impact crater at some point. The Hiawatha crater in Greenland was discovered, and some people thought that was the impact crater. It turns out that the Hiawatha crater does not date to the beginning of the Younger Dryas. In fact, it's tens of millions of years older than that. But when you start putting together all the evidence, you have to, in my opinion, look at other factors as well. When the sun has a major solar outburst, that is plasma, which is ejected. And if the earth is in the way, hits the earth. We could think of as huge lightning bolts. Some people refer to them as cosmic rays. You have what are known as solar proton events. You have coronal mass ejections sometimes what's now referred to as a micronova. This would create the same type of shock features. It would create the same kind of vitrification, these glassy little spirals. It would set huge fires in incineration on the surface of the Earth. When our sun releases what are called coronal mass ejections, CMEs, this is a tremendous amount of very hot plasma that is leaving the corona, the atmosphere of the sun. But it's not traveling alone. It's not just plasma. There's actually a magnetic field that travels with the plasma. So a massive CME with the plasma and the magnetic field coming toward the Earth, what happens is the energy from that plasma pushes the protons in front of it at such an accelerated rate that they begin to move and follow the magnetic field lines between the planet, creating tremendous amounts of radiation. Now, normally, our planetary magnetic field would shield us from that radiation. However, this happens to be occurring during a time when the magnetic fields were waning to begin with. In 2011, Paul A. LaViolette, Ph.D., published a paper providing evidence from the ocean sediment record in the Curacao Basin of Venezuela that 12,837 years before present, an abrupt rise of radiocarbon concentrations may have been caused by a massive solar proton event. La Violette compares the findings from Venezuela with data from the same time period within the Greenland ice record which reveals a large acidity spike and high nitrate ion concentrations, suggesting that these are indicators of a sudden cosmic ray influx. Coronal mass ejections were throwing off balls of plasma. In a matter of days, as it raced towards the Earth, 
this bubble of hot coronal gas and plasma would have expanded to form a dome-shaped front tens of millions of miles in diameter. Upon arriving, this uh, sphere of hot, fiery plasma would have temporarily engulfed the Earth. It also would have severely disturbed the Earth's geomagnetic fields. For the beginning of the Younger Dryas, we have a cooling period. How can the sun having a major solar outburst cause a cooling period? Before the beginning of the Younger Dryas, the Earth was slowly warming up. And what you had on the huge continental ice sheets and the glaciers is you had melting. And what were being created were huge lakes on those ice sheets that were being held back at their perimeter by essentially ice dams. When this solar outburst hit, it melted those ice dams. It poured huge amounts of fresh water into the North Atlantic. This changed ocean circulation patterns and created an incredible cooling effect in the Northern Hemisphere for 1,200 years. One has to realize that the Younger Dryas cooling period is primarily a Northern Hemisphere phenomenon. So all of a sudden, in my assessment, all the pieces fit together. Whether we're talking about the comet, whether we're talking about a CME, all of these events are now unveiling a new story of our world and a new story of the conditions that have driven the civilization in our world in times past. If there was a watery planet that exploded in our solar system, and a massive amount of water and icy debris impacted and began flooding the Earth. What other evidence can be found of the time before Earth's surface was drastically changed? New technology from satellites and remote sensing now give us the opportunity to have a vantage point from far above the surface of the Earth. We're looking from space onto the landforms that remain today to the continents that remain today but we're looking at landforms from a new perspective through new eyes through a new lens of understanding one of the discoveries as we've made recently is when we begin looking at the coast of north america for example in california in the mountains and we see the landforms that appear to be vast drainage areas moving as you would expect fluvial channels to move if we continue following those fluvial channels off of the coast what now is under the water at one time was exposed what do we begin to see and what we begin to see is precisely that the continuity the continuation of these landforms under the water telling us how much water has covered what was once the land you can look at continental margins so if, if someone wants to do this they can go up to the gulf of alaska and they can see, see a series of rivers that came down from what was the continental shelf down into the abyss and that went hundreds of miles seven eight hundred miles out one of them winds its way between two submerged volcanoes over on the east coast you can see where those rivers flowed through the margin down into the abyss prior to the flood so the fact that we can see these rivers on both the east and west side of North America, that invalidates continental drift. They haven't been moving. These, these rivers were flowing for millions of years subaerially, 
and they became submerged during the flood, and that's why we can see them now. It means the, plant, the continent hasn't been moving. If there would there be a smearing, they, they wouldn't have the same source. You can tell they have the, the same mountain system, the drainage system that's still subaerial that flowed at one time down before the flood, flowed down into the abyss. When we look at the satellite imagery, we also see ancient riverbeds under what is now the Mediterranean Sea. And there's further evidence of ancient river systems in the Celtic Sea, just off the coast of Normandy and England. Here, we can see the remains of these ancient rivers that have the same terminal depths that we can find in the Monterey Bay area. So this provides us some hints of what was going on in the ancient world, what was going on with some of these ancient civilizations, who these people were, and what they were doing. As satellite imagery and ice core samples continue to expand our understanding of the ancient planet, there is little doubt that the Earth has drastically changed since the beginning of the Younger Dryas. What other evidence points to a time where some of the people on planet Earth were able to survive this destructive time in history? On our planet, we have some societies who went under the earth. They constructed tunnels, they constructed living rooms, they constructed cities under the earth. Other constructed gigantic dolmens, dolmens with a gigantic roof. Why? Because from time to time, stones fell from heaven. They wanted to be protected against these stones who fall from heaven. That's why they created subterranean cities in Turkey, like Terinkuyu, Kaimakli, gigantic cities. No stones, just stones fell from heaven like this. It must be a reason. It was the destroying of the asteroid belt. What if advanced word got to Earth that our planet was to befall a great series of calamities, catastrophes that would destroy civilization as it was known back then? What if this is what we see in the Cappadocia region of Turkey with places like Derinkuyu, where they built an entire city underground to protect themselves from the vitrification, from the fires, from the solar flares that were just going to decimate the planet? What if this is what we see in the Hopi legends of the ant people coming up to rescue them and keep them safe underground until finally the earth was safe to repopulate? an advanced warning yeah hey
According to mythological and geological records, roughly 12,800 to 12,900 years ago, the Earth was drastically changed by a cosmic event. Trapped under the surface of this majestic planet is an ancient record that holds the clues to a time on Earth when all geological patterns and cycles were broken and the Earth was ravaged by floods and plunged back into a frozen and dark time known as the Younger Dryas period. There's a mystery that exists even today that the great scientists of our world continue to speculate on and they have to speculate because the truth is we do not know precisely what happened during a mysterious period of time called the Younger Dryas. It's a mystery because of the sudden shift in climate, the sudden shift in the sea levels. We're left only with the clues that tell us that these events happened. It's up to us to determine what caused the events themselves. Why did they happen? During the Pleistocene, the glaciers were at their maximum. We were coming out of this ice age. There was a warming that was happening on the planet as you would expect through the cyclic conditions that we have seen in the past. These cycles often are driven by what are called Milankovic cycles. This is Earth's dance around the sun in space. It is a tilt, an angle, and a wobble that changes our relationship to the sun, periodically causing temperatures to rise and fall. We were on course for this gradual warming when something happened, and it's this mystery that is at the root of the controversy that we're seeing today, and it's at the root of what may be the cause for the loss of the great civilizations that we're talking about, like Mu and Atlantis. The ice core samples that we've dug up from various locations, particularly Greenland, also Russia, have shown a, a number of things relating to the Younger Dryas. So every year on glaciers, when the snowfall lands and it gets compacted into ice, Every year, year after year, there are these layers of ice that get built up in the ice structure itself. So when you drill down and take a, a core sample of ice, our science is progressing to the point where we